How are we doing? Good. We're going to be in Acts 26. We're just about the end. We, we won't quite make it today, but next week we'll, next Wednesday we'll finish. We'll get as far into 30, 27 as we can. But what you're going to see is this. Uh, a couple months ago, I went to Banff with my wife. And after a, a couple of days, we called home and talked to our 17-year-old and 16-year-old and my daughter, Gabrielle, who was at that time 12, and then my son, who was 10, who's almost 11, and Myron, who was four. And their perspective on it was interesting. And my older girls are like, are you having fun? Is it cool up there? What have you eaten, right? Instagram is all about what you eat. Have you, did, you, did you eat anything Instagrammable, right? <laughs> so that was that. And then uh, Myron got on the phone, and this is what he said. He said, hi, mom. Hi, dad. Have you guys made any new friends up there? So cute, right? That's his perspective. Like, it's about making friends. So my older kids, it's about being cool or having fun or do you have any good pictures to show how cool you are, how fun you, much fun you had? Myron, it's all, did you make any new friends? So funny. So what we're gonna see is this. There's a bunch of different perspectives that are gonna come about. We'll recap a couple of them. And Paul's in prison now. He has his own perspective, which is pretty amazing. The way he views the events that have happened to him is a brilliant, brilliant thing. He's gotta defend himself. He's gonna be in a shipwreck. It's just, it's one bad thing after another. But what I found is this, there's an amazing amount of power that we have over the perspective that we bring to circumstances, right? It's like this. So I have this picture. Can you put it up? Maybe I have a picture. Okay. Who sees an old witch? Raise your hand. Who sees a young maiden? Raise your hand. Ah, you guys have a great perspective. Right? And once you've seen one way, it becomes radically hard to see the other way. Once your mind is fixed on, it's an old witch, to try to get somebody to see the other, it takes a lot of work to be like, no, 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 it, it can be a young maiden. Or if you've seen the young maiden, it takes a lot of work to be like, no, do you, does everybody see both now? Who does not see both? Okay. All right, so here is the witch. This is the witch's nose. This is the witch's mouth. This is the witch's chin. This is her kind of wig. This is her hair. Now, do you see, does everyone see the witch? Yes. No, you don't see the witch? Does everybody see? No, okay, one more time. <laughs> this is the witch's eye. There you go. There Thank you. Great perspective. <laughs> so, eye, big nose, mouth, chin. Old witch, right? Okay, everybody see old witch? Okay, young maiden, the maiden is looking away, all right? So this is her eye, this is her cheekbone, this is her chin, this is her neck with a necklace. Does everybody see the young maiden? Does anyone not see the young maiden? I'm sorry. It's the best I can do. Stare at it for a while. So I, I use this picture with my kids, and I tell them, 
The same events in life, the same drawing, the same circumstances, depending on your perspective, can make life look like an old witch or a beautiful young maiden, all depending on the perspective that you bring to it. So it's, it's more about who you are than what's happened to you. And that's most of life, right? Perspective is that huge. So we're gonna see a lot of that and I'll try to point out some of them as we go through here. It's a lot of choice. How are you gonna choose to see these circumstances? So let's jump in. We see the first one right here. Chapter 26, verse one. Had, who had seen that picture before? Oh, well, man, that takes all the fun out of it. The internet has taken all the fun out of life. <laughs> Did you guys see both before? All right. I've got nothing for you. I'm gonna pray and go home. <laughs> so Agrippa said to Paul, this is King Agrippa, King of Israel, Paul, prisoner, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate, literally blessed, that is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Paul says, I'm so happy to be here. He's been in prison for two years. This is the fifth time he's been brought up to defend himself. He knows he's not guilty. Everyone else knows he's not guilty. And yet he says, I'm so happy to be here today. Who would have that perspective? You're falsely put in jail, kept there for two years, put on trial time and time again, every time, no, he's not guilty, but they never let you go. And that you're still saying, I'm so happy to be here. Why would Paul say that? Because he's doing what he was created to do. And Paul did not care where he was gonna do that at. If I get to proclaim, it's Philippians chapter one, if I get to proclaim the name of Jesus, I don't care where I do it. In the town square, in a church, in prison, because I'm doing what I was created to do. Brilliant. When you're doing what you're created to do, it won't matter where you're doing it. It's just that simple. You'll find yourself fortunate and blessed. And he's talking to King Agrippa, who is a figurehead at this point. The real power is Rome. He's just this kind of figurehead that does what Rome says he's supposed to do. It'd be like, kind of like the Queen of England. Does the Queen of England do anything? Does she set policy or does she run parliament? Or, does she do anything? Nothing. <laughs> right? Is she important? Yeah, right? So uh, like back in 2007, I happened to be in Washington, D.C. with a good friend of mine, Dominic Doan, who's actually from England. And the queen was in town visiting the Bushes. If you remember that, it's when George W. Bush referred to her as like 225 years old. I don't know if you remember that. It's, it was Anyways, it was hilarious. She's like, I'm not that old. I'm only, right? So just a typical Bushism. So he did that. And then she was going to lay a wreath on like a World War II memorial. And so I'm like, Dom, call her up, bro. Let's have tea with her. Come on, you're English. Didn't quite work like that. So we went out there to just check it out. So we go out there. It was unbelievable. There was thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people in America going to watch the queen 
Leah Reed. That's how important she is. Like she still matters. So that's kind of what he is, right? He he's not, doesn't have this position of, hey, you're making policy, but he's really, really important, super important. So Paul says this, I beg you, listen to me patiently. Why does he say that? Because it's hard to listen to people patiently, isn't it? It's so hard, especially when they do verse four. My manner of life from my youth. He's like, what? <laughs> when are we starting this conversation? Right? It's like when you talk to someone, you ask them, dude, you look bum. What's up? Well, when I was two years old. No, 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 no. Don't. No, no. No. <laughs> Don't go there, man. It's kind of like that. He's like, oh, are you starting that young? Right? So it's hard. But Paul's got an important message. He's trying to get through this guy. So here's his message. My manner of my life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. He was a well-known, famous guy in his circle. He was an important dude. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by the Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in a raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to the foreign cities. As we says to the king, Number one, I had a massive reputation that I was part of the strictest of the strictest crew called the Pharisees. Today, it'd be like this. It'd be like the Amish, right? You could tell an Amish person right away, right? Because of the way they dress, the way they look, their beard, they don't drive cars. You instantly recognize this is a different kind of person. They're in a different crew. They're Amish, right? They're so strict. When they rebel, they rebel by sleeping in until 5.30. That's them, right? Hyper strict, recognizable. You know right away, Amish, that's the Pharisees. The Pharisees were called the bump and stumble group because they were so worried about looking at a woman wrongly, they would close their eyes if they saw a woman and they just hit things with their head. But that's how strict they were. They lived a life of real strict uh, adherence to what they believed God wanted. And what Paul is saying is, listen, I got Olympic gold in that. I was a LeBron James of the Pharisees. It's top dog, right? Number one. Number two, he says this, I'm here because of hope, right? See that verse seven? I'm here because of hope. I love that. I'm here, I'm being accused because I was giving people hope. It'd be like this, when you go to a job interview and they ask you, what's your weakness? And you reply like, 
mm, you know, one of my weaknesses is I just work too hard. I just care too much. It's hard for me not see, to see things completely to the end, right? You, you turn it around. That's what Paul's doing. He's brilliant. Like, hey, the whole reason why I'm here is because I was giving people hope. And what was the hope that he was giving people? Resurrection. And he says this. It's pretty amazing. And you can spend a lot of time on this if you want to. You can rabbit hole it. It's the same hope and the promises made by God to our fathers. When you see fathers in the Bible, you gotta go all the way back to the tribal leaders, right? The, the 12 sons of Jacob. So what Paul is saying is, this thing, this hope of the resurrection is not something new. It goes all the way back, all the way back. And then he, verse eight, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Does God ever say, man, that's incredible? Does God ever do something and be like, yeah, that even amazes me? Huh. The only reason why you would think it was incredible that God could raise the dead is because you have the wrong definition of God. Perhaps you remember the book a couple of years ago, actually, I think it's 20 years ago, by Rabbi Harold Kushner called Why Do Good Things Happen to Bad People? And he wrote that book after he watched his son die from progeria, which is a disease that makes you age 10 times faster than you're supposed to age. So he watched his son essentially go through all of life in a span of a decade and a half. And it just broke his heart. That's a heart, heartbreaking disease. And so out of that anguish, he writes this book. And his thing at the end of the book is this. He says, God is powerless to stop these kinds of things. He wants to, but he can't. So Rabbi Harold Kushner at the end of his life, or the end of his son's life, I should say, came up with, no, God would love to. He's benevolent and he's kind. He's just not powerful. That's the kind of God he believes in. Small g God. Paul believes in a big G God. And the reason why he believes in a big G God is one reason, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why. And to me, that is the whole game changer. When I wanna talk apologetics or I wanna go with anybody, I get as quickly as I can to Jesus and the resurrection, that it changes everything. And we'll hit on that a little bit more in a while. So here's what he says. He goes, the strictness of my religion though, caused me, verses nine through 11, and we've read this a bunch of times now, to rage. I hated the way that will always happen to a person when they end up in a strict kind of cultist religion. Do you know that? You will always rage against things that are different than you when you're in a very tiny kind of isolated cult because it's us for and no more and everybody else is wrong. That's the church I grew up in. It was, we have it right, we have the truth, wisdom dies with us, and everybody else out there is wrong. It's a very bad way to live your life. And what happens is you rage against people that are just a little bit different than you. And the older I've grown, I used to have, um, it was, it was a, all these things that I would fight over. And it was everything, man, eschatology, salvation, just a massive thing. If you differed with me at all on these things, I'm gonna fight you over it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna prove to you from scripture that I'm right, right? The older I've got, 
that category has shrunk, 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 shrunk. And now it's only a handful of things. It's Jesus, it's God, scripture, sin, and kind of where we're headed. I'll talk a lot about those things. And then I have this other category that I love to have conversations on, but I'm not like, you have to believe this way. And then I have this massive category now that I just call it the don't care. You can talk it, you can ask me, I'll be like, oh, that's interesting, okay. And you only get a rise out of me. So much healthier. Because I don't think a lot of those things matter. At the end of the age, when we are in Jesus's presence, we will not be arguing about the rapture or the tribulation period. We won't be arguing about that. It won't matter anymore because we're in his presence. And what matter is things like Jesus and, and, and what we're supposed to do through eternity. And all, that's what's gonna matter. And what, how we loved each other, right? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, you can have all knowledge, but if you're not loving, man, it's no profit. So I've inverted my, my thing now. And I love to have conversations, love theology. And I'll, t- I'll give you my opinion, no doubt about it. But I also say, you know what? There are really smart people that disagree with me. And they're fine being wrong. They're really smart. <laughs> they're fine being wrong, but I'm okay with it. So the strictness really of his religion caused him to do something. And he says this. I found, it, I, I found this really interesting. I underlined it in my Bible. I hadn't seen it before. He says this. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name. He had this perspective now. The strictness of his religion, the isolation of it, caused him now in his own mind, he wasn't praying about it, he wasn't seeking God about it, it was, I decided to do this. I saw a witch and I went after her. I didn't see the beautiful maiden, I just saw the witch and I persecuted her. Your brain is so powerful. And once your brain locks onto something, science has found this, once your brain is locked onto an idea, to change your mind, it almost takes a Damascus moment. There has to be a massive thing that happens to you for you to then see a different perspective. Like your brain is unbelievably powerful. I was reading this guy named Paul Thorson who does this hypnosis thing. He'll hypnotize people and then he'll do things like, he, to this one person, he said, I just touched your arm with a red hot brand. And it was just his pencil. And he touched this person's arm. Under hypnosis, up came a third degree blister. And this other lady, he said, I am drawing the letter A on your forearm right now. Didn't even touch her. And up came, like, like you'd taken a pencil or something and, and made a little bit of a sharp, in, up came the letter A on her arm. Just, it's, it's unbelievable. Like the power of the brain, I, I don't even think we know it yet. And when the brain heads in the wrong direction, like Paul, you can end up with a raging fury in the wrong direction, right? It's scary. So what do we do? Notice what happens to him. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun. That's a bright light. That shone round me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goats. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand upon your feet for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant 
and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from the people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. We looked at this on Sunday. Um, there's one addition that's not in the other accounts of Paul's testimony. It's this little phrase, it's hard for you to kick against the goats. Paul was convinced in his mind, but all the while there was this probing and this pushing from Jesus saying, you're wrong, you're wrong. A goad was a sharp stick that you would poke a cow or a donkey to get him to go the way you wanted him to go. So there was something poking Paul the whole time telling him, bro, you're going the wrong way. And he just refused to listen. We have to be willing to be redirected very often in life. And I was talking to Mark Scudstad, I don't know what it was, six weeks ago or something. We were talking about this trip we took to Mount Shasta where we climbed Mount Shasta. So I'd never done it before, Mark had done it before. So I just was following Mark. And the first thing we did was stop at the Big Bear Diner at like nine o'clock at night and ate this massive meal, followed by a big giant milkshake. I'm like, are you sure this is what you're supposed to do when you mountain climb? <laughs> oh yeah. And so, all right, let's do it. All right, and, and most people hike up to Lake Helen the day before and they camp up there. And then you start at one at night. So you kind of crest before it gets sunny and slushy. We just decided we're gonna do the whole thing in one shot. So we hiked from the trailhead up to Lake Helen, got there about one o'clock, woke everybody up. Um, I woke up the wrong person and they were not happy with me. It's hard to see. So woke everybody up. And then myself and this guy named Wade Comerford, we're just full of ourselves. We decided let's take off and let's go. But we had never hiked it before. So you can kind of see like the outline of the mountain, you know, it's, it's dark, but you can see the outline. We're like, that's up, let's go. So we start heading up, just straight up. That's what we did, just here we go. And I had decided that I was going to hike Mount Shasta with only equipment you could buy from Walmart, <laughs> which is not smart. So I had no crampons, I had no ice axe, and I had no helmet. I was the only person on the mountain with no crampons, no ice axe, and no helmet, which could tell you something about my own stupidity. So here I am, I'm following this guy that's never been up the mountain, I've never been up the mountain, and we're just hiking where, like, you know, pitch black. And then I remember I looked back, and I looked down and I see this, and there was 230 people that hiked the mountain that day. So I see this stream of lights and they're not going up the mountain. They're heading to the right. And I'm like, those morons, they're going the wrong way. And we just keep hiking, right? Like, man, we got it here. And then we, we, I, we, it starts to see steeper and steeper. I don't have an ice axe or crampons. And so Wade's now starting to kind of get away from me and I'm like slipping and pretty soon I'm just clinging to this ice shelf going, oh my goodness where are we at? Because you can't see, you know, I can see like 10 feet in front of me, that's it. And then all of a sudden I see this one light leave the line of lights and start just clicking at me on and off, on and on, on and off. And I'm like, what is that? And I hear a voice, you're going the wrong way. And I saw the light. <laughs> it was Mark Scudstad. You idiots, what are you doing? So make a long story short, by the time I made it over to them, they were already caught up to me and yeah, made it to the top. But completely convinced in my own mind, I was right. Until somebody else said, bro, you're going the wrong way. 
in this thing called the church, we are supposed to be willing to listen to people a Mark Scudstad that you know loves you and cares about you when they say, bro, you're going the wrong way. Because we can be fully convinced in our own mind that we're going the right way and be dead wrong. And people that love us, we should be willing to listen to them. Willing to listen to the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit's called our guide. That those little goads that we have in our life, like you're going the wrong way. You're going the wrong way. Colossians 3.15 says this, let the peace of God rule in your heart. When I had this kind of goaded feeling in my heart where I'm like, Man, I just don't have peace about this. I just don't know. Guess what? Probably God's spirit. I need to step back, maybe get counsel from people that I like and ask, am I heading in the right direction or not? And then maybe be redirected like this right here. Let God's peace rule in your heart. So Paul gets redirected. Good news. Then verse 19, therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. That Jesus Christ, that the Christ, excuse me, must suffer. And that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Paul gets to the gospel. Here's the good news. And Paul says this. This was the same message that Moses had and the prophets. That Jesus is plan A, period. It goes all the way back to Moses. Who's Moses? The guy that wrote the first five books of the Bible. I think you can find the gospel in Genesis 3.15, there's hope sinners that the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head and he will bruise his heel, right? A new kind of something, seed of a woman, someone born of a virgin, that it's all the way back there. That the law that came afterwards was never the plan. Read Galatians chapter three, verses nine through 19 where it says this, the law was temporary, added because of transgression until the promised offspring came. It was just the keeper. It goes on to say, it was our schoolmaster that led us to school, but once you graduate, you don't need the schoolmaster anymore. That all these laws and rules, they were there to kind of keep us safe until Jesus, it's always been Jesus. And so that's what he says to these people, Jesus. And then he has this little phrase that I think gives us kind of, a Pauline philosophy on providence. It's verse 22. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. I'm here right now before you King Agrippa and before you Festus and before you Bernice and before this massive auditorium of people. I'm here because of God. 
And you could say, well, what about Claudius Lysias? What about him? He saved you. What about Felix who didn't turn you over and get, let you get killed? What about Festus who did the same thing? What about, didn't they help in that? Here's what I believe Paul felt about God's providence. He knew, verse 19, my obedience, I obeyed what God said. I partnered in some way. Claudius, Felix, Festus, my circumstances around all this stuff, all these things are this symphony that God is the conductor to get his will to come to pass. That's Ephesians 1, verse 11, that God is working all things after the counsel of his will. And he uses people in that process and he uses circumstances in that process and he's weaving it all together for his end that he wants to have happen. To me, that's, that's what providence is. And when you get that, when you get that, things out of your control, he couldn't control the riot in Jerusalem. He couldn't control what Felix was gonna do, what Festus was gonna do, what Agrippa was. He couldn't control any of that, but he still knew this. God, you can use all this. You can weave it together. My obedience, no doubt. I partner in this. I have a place in this. I'm not just a leaf on the wind that's blown around by your blueprint, but rather I play a part in it as well. When you get this, things that are out of your control, you get a piece on them. Like maybe the reason this is happening is because this is part of God's providential work, working all things after the counsel of his will. Okay, so I'll give you an example that helped me. I was actually studying this section when this happened to me. And it was a number of years ago. Chris Clark let me borrow his truck and his fifth wheel to go camping. I didn't really wanna borrow it, but he kept like insisting. He's such a nice guy, I'm like, okay, fine. I don't like borrowing things because I tend to break them. So I don't, don't lend anything to me. So that, that's always in my mind, like, I don't wanna break this. So we went camping, we got home late on a Monday night and I had an elders meeting at six o'clock in the morning the next night. So I needed to get the trailer and stuff back to him. So we cleared it out really fast. And I said, I'm gonna take it really quick down to the little car wash thing there that's by Bymart, because it's kind of an easy little loop. And I'm gonna spray it down, clean it all up. And I knew I had this jar of quarters inside. So I go inside to find the jar of quarters. I can't find them. And I'm kind of in a rush. I'm like, hey, where's the jar of quarters? Hey, you know, asking all my kids, all my four, because camping with four kids is not all that fun. Have you noticed that? It's like work. It's not really a vacation. It's you, you went somewhere, you got exhausted and you came home more exhausted. So I'm kind of like just a little bit like zzz, 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 trying to find the quarters. Where are the quarters? Come on. It took like 20 minutes to finally find the quarters. Like, ah, quarters. So take off, get down there, go pulling through to pull the fifth wheel in underneath that area so I could spray it off. Um, yeah, someone knows. <laughs> Maybe you've done it. So here I'm pulling in and you know, I'm looking, I'm checking everything, checking the mirrors. There's no mirror on top, by the way. So I'm checking the mirrors. All of a sudden the owner comes pulling in, jumps out, stop. I'm like, what? I was 18 inches from this three inch pipe, just gashing through the front of that fifth wheel because they sit up higher. And I was just like, ah. I was so thankful that I could not find the quarters for 20 minutes. Because if I had found the quarters for 20 minutes, it would have taken a lot more than a jar of quarters to fix the problem I was gonna cause. <laughs> so now, things that are out of my control like that, now I realize maybe, maybe I just need to mellow out and say, okay, maybe this is a goad, this is a prod. Okay, mellow out, it'll be okay. And when you get that kind of perspective in life, man, it changes everything. Now, I'm not saying be irresponsible, that's just stupid. 
That doesn't honor stupidity. He honors obedience, no doubt. But there are some things I couldn't control where the quarters were at. And I can get all frantic about it and worry about it. I can be like, let's just start looking for the quarters and not be worried about it and not get out of control about it. Maybe this is part of the weaving together of God's perfect counsel. And you trust him that much more. And that's what Paul, I think, did. So here's it. Here's it. Says all that. Now we got Festus. He's the governor. He's the power controller. He's the man. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. (laughs) He must have just loved that. Thanks. Appreciate the compliment. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind. Most excellent Festus. How kind is that? (laughs) You moron? That's probably what I would have said. I'm not out of my mind, you moron. What are you talking about? Most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things. And to him, I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. I think here's what happens with Festus. It's like when you invite a guest over to your home and they start talking about a subject you know is really controversial, you're like, oh no. I think he's like that, like, yeah, this guy's kind of in my, I wanted to grip it to talk to him. Oh, stop, dude, too much. And Paul's response is simple. Number one, I'm not crazy. I'm not crazy. This was not done in a corner. Now, this is just a short while after the death, burial, and Jesus. And Paul says, this stuff, everybody knows about it. It's not like Scientology where it's all done in a corner, it's hidden and like nobody can know about it. This has been out there. We've been talking about it now for 30 years, 28 years. Hey, not done in a corner. I love that. It's one of the best proofs to me of the validity of what Paul was talking about. Everybody knew about this. In fact, people that study Paul, his conversion is one of the enigmas for people that don't believe in Jesus. What happened to him? From violent persecutor to one of the most excellent proponents of our faith. Not down in the corner, number one. Number two, he gets personal. King Agrippa, listen, king. Do you believe in the prophets? Doesn't even let him answer. I know you believe. Why is that interesting? Because King Agrippa was not a good dude. He was sleeping with his sister, Bernice. They're immoral. I mean, he was known as just a bad dude. And yet Paul doesn't say, hey, you perverted, sexual, gross person. He doesn't call him out that way. He says, you believe in the prophets, right? Yeah, you do. Listen, when you are sharing with somebody, most people do not need to be reminded that they're blow-it cases. Very few people do. It's one out of 100 to me. It's the adamant dude that I'll... The other 99, I know this, I'll win more with honey than with vinegar. Paul knows it too. You believe? I know you believe. Just lays it on thick. 
And number three, are you trying to persuade me? What does Paul say? Like today, it's almost like, no, don't persuade people. You know, just present the truth to them and let them figure it out. Not Paul. Of course I am. I want you to believe. I want Festus with his goofy name to believe. I want the Praetorian Guard to believe. I want all these people watching. Yes, I want to persuade everybody to believe. I found Treasure Island and I want everyone to go with me. That was Paul. I want you to have what I have, minus the chains. Can you say that? I want people to have the life that I have. Can you say that? I hope we can. Because I think the promise of the gospel is we're supposed to be experiencing a life that other people should say, I want that life. I want what you have. What do you have? Paul would say, I want you to have the same life I do because it's brilliant and it's beautiful. And I have this perspective, no matter how bad circumstances are, I'm blessed to be here today talking with you in chains because I have a heart that's been resurrected from death into life and I want you to have the same thing, right? So then here's what happens. Then the king arose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So we've seen three powerful men and each of them have a different reaction to the gospel. Felix was the first guy. And Felix, when Paul was talking to him, about the kingdom, about righteousness, about coming judgment. It says he grew alarmed and said, away with you, I'll hear about this later. Felix was a, was a procrastinator. Here's what we know about him. He ends up getting in trouble, gets removed from being a governor after two years. His wife ends up in Pompeii and is killed in a volcano. And they say, according to history, that he went mad. He procrastinated. Ah, oh, later, 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 later. Then you got the next guy, Festus. He's a politician. He's got the political heart, right? It's what's expedient, what's, you know, this is not, hey, why are you making him uncomfortable? Why are you talking this way? We want everything expedient, easy, you know, come on. And so his political heart, he doesn't respond either. And what we know in history is two, two years later, he dies. And he's replaced. And then King Agrippa. King Agrippa is the partying heart. He knows this, if I believe, if I'm persuaded to be a Christian, then I'm gonna get rid of my sister. I'm not gonna be able to do that anymore. It's changed my lifestyle and the way that I live. So what does he do? He stands up and walks away because the partying was more important to him. All three miss out. Maybe King Agrippa got close, but close doesn't count, does it? A trapeze artist that misses the other swing by 10 feet or 10 inches doesn't matter, does it? you still missed it. You still missed it. And sadly, down they go, right? And what we're gonna see, I think, from here on out is we see Paul's heart, which is brilliant. And we'll get a little ways into this. I'll read a lot of this because this is just, it's essentially narrative. Chapter 27, verse one. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion 
of the Augustan cohort named Julius. This is top dude. This is Navy SEAL 6. Augustan, he's, he's, he's a good, good dude. By the way, centurions are always viewed positively in the Bible. For your own, you'll see. And embarking, and embarking in a ship of Adamantium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. So Aristarchus is like, man, I've always wanted to travel with Paul. Can I go with you? Sure. He's gonna regret that decision. <laughs> the next day, we put in at Sidon and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmone, coasting along it with difficulty. We came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. All right, so it's, if you're a sailor person, you might enjoy this. History, real quick history. Um, Rome, the city of Rome was giving away free bread at this time. If you were a Roman citizen, you were guaranteed free bread. Later, it would be added on free wine as well. It was a way to get political power and get yourself keeping the vote. So there was this pipeline of ships that went from Egypt, the breadbasket of the Roman Empire, and just took grain all the time to Rome. So this ship from Alexandria, which is in Egypt, was one of those ships. And they were massive. Rome built massive ships. We, you won't get back to massive ships like Rome built until the 1700s. Once the Roman Empire falls, no one builds big ships again until Britain in the 1700s. So just, they jump on one of these big grain ships. And when you got on them, you were part of the crew. You worked and you toiled and you, did, you just, you, you were doing whatever, swabbing the deck. So that, that's what they're doing. So this, they jump on there. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, this is the day of atonement, sometime late October. Paul advised them, the prisoner Paul, <laughs> saying, sir, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid no attention to the, but paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. So here's what happens. They land in this little city. They don't like it. They wanna to go to this other city called Phoenix. That's the, the city name. Only 40 miles away. In a good wind, you can make that in 24 hours. Just a couple miles an hour. And Paul's telling them, don't do it. The captain's saying, we can make it. 
If they take a vote, the majority of the people on the ship say, hey, we can make it. The wind is blowing, the circumstances look good. All the experts agree, so they grow, they go. And the reason most people believe is this. This tiny little town of Lycia was not fun for a sailor to hang out in for winter. But Phoenix, woo, everything you wanted was in Phoenix. It'd be like asking a bunch of sailors, do you wanna spend the winter in Glendale or Las Vegas? <laughs> we'll go to Las Vegas, right? That, that's the reason, like, we're out of here. We wanna go there. But it could be dangerous. And it is dangerous. So this is like Gilligan's Island, right? A three-hour tour turns into something else. The 40 miles they get, that is gonna turn into 500 miles in a couple of weeks when they end up in Malta. So here it is, verse 14. But soon, a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster, ooh, struck down from the land. When the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. That is miserable. If you've been on a ship that you cannot face into the waves, it's just, it's all over the place. Just terrible. You ever been seasick? Everyone seasick for like three weeks straight? Okay, this, I call this the Paul diet. 75 pounds in 20 days, guaranteed. <laughs> Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After ho- hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. They start wrapping ropes around the planks of the ship because we're just gonna just fall apart. Then fearing that they would run aground on the Syrtis, this is like a, uh, a floating sandbar that no one knew where it was at. So they lowered the gear and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me. (laughs) Paul's still a man. (laughs) I told you. I love that. And we not set sail from Crete and incur the injury and loss. And now I urge you to take heart for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night, there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all that sail with you. So take heart, men. I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have said, but we must run aground on some island. When the 14th day had come, as we are driven across the Adriatic Sea, About midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A fathom is six feet, so 60 feet long, 60 feet, 120 feet deep. So they took a sounding again and and they found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. I would have prayed for something else, but all right, day's fine. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat, into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said this to the centurion and to the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. And the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. 
As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food saying, today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ships in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Miserable. Three things and then we're done. Three things on storms. Here's what storms do. They cause you to evaluate. They cause you to evaluate what's really important. Do you notice that? There's this thing. Well, we tossed out this at first. And then we tossed out this later. And then we tossed out this. And at the end, they tossed out even the food. Storms help you evaluate what is most important. And you get rid of what doesn't matter. That's the good thing about a storm. I hiked the coming off wilderness for my bachelor party. Uh, some people go to Vegas. I went to the Kalmy office. The only problem was we did it in the month of January. It started January 9th. And it started with beautiful winds blowing gently on Friday when we got there. And Saturday was beautiful winds. And Sunday morning, we woke up. We were supposed to be out Monday. And it was lightly raining. And then about midday, it started to snow. And then it started to blizzard. And we were up in this place called, it's, the, it's, it's Vulcan Ridge, which is just, it's the most nasty, steepest mountain on both sides. And just unbelievable wind. Um, like now it's stacking up snow. And we're like, oh no. And we've been hiking at that point about, it was about five or three at night, starting at dark, about 10 hours. And so we sat down, I still remember the place, just this little clump of trees. We sat down, we took off our backpacks and we started taking out stuff that we didn't want anymore. And we just left a pile there. My buddy Neil left a pair of vast Gore-Tex leather boots. They're about 250 bucks back in 2000. So just, it was, that didn't matter anymore. You gotta evaluate. This doesn't matter. Clyde left his cast iron pan, which I didn't understand why he brought in the first place. <laughs> Bro, <laughs> I would not have brought that, right? And then we start walking, we keep walking. And then one of our crew, I won't name him. He just, he, it was like, it was, it was about probably nine o'clock at night at this point, And we just had to get out. And he just couldn't do it. He said, I'm done. And we're on this windswept ridge. Just, it, 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 just you're, you're, you're doing this to keep the snow off. He just lays down, takes his sleeping bag out and crawls in it. Like, bro, you cannot stay here. I'll catch up with you later. No, you will not, right? So what we had to do, we had to take all of his stuff, divide it up among ourselves. And then we put him right in the middle of us. And we're like, you can't stop. And we did like literally get a goat and prick him along. Like, no, no, why? Because he was important to us. You sort of, in storms, you evaluate what matters. I don't know if you're in a storm right now, but man, it's a good time to say, what really matters to me? What can I toss overboard? It doesn't matter at all. And you get down to what really, really is important. So you evaluate, number two, in storms, you often get a voice. Who's the boss here now? Right? Paul's calling all the shots. The centurion's doing exactly what Paul is telling him right? Hey, these guys, they can't leave. Okay, fine, right? Why'd you cut off the boat? Because Paul, my good friend, told me to, so I cut off the boat, right? <laughs> Paul's got his voice. I think a lot of times people won't listen to us when there's a wind gently blowing. It takes a northeaster for them to say, 
dude, help me. My life is a mess. I'm a wreck. Help me. And when that happens, you can stand like Paul and you can have a voice. And what's his message? He does give a little prick, no doubt. You should listen to me. But then it's all hope from that point on, isn't it? It's a message of hope. Okay, when someone comes to me and they're in a storm that they should not have gone into, like this centurion that they've been warned about, I don't poke them. You know what I do? I give them hope. Genesis 50, 20. Listen, what the enemy wants to use for evil in your life, God has this thing called judotheology. He can take that and he can use it for something that you cannot believe if you'll trust him right now. That we believe in a God who took the worst event in history, the crucifixion of God, and turned it into the most glorious Easter ever. And that's the same God that we serve today. I always bring people a message of hope when they're in a storm. Not pounding them, this is your bed, you made it, you're sleeping out, what? No, hope. Because redemption is the greatest thing that God has ever done. The greatest work, and he can redeem what you and I have blown and made mistakes in, and he can use it for good. And really, when we come to the table, that's what we're eating and drinking. The hope that God can take, even our mistakes, even the, our foolhardy direction we've gone right into storms that we should not have. And he's great enough to take those things and weave them for his glory and our joy. And so when we get communion, that's what we're gonna talk about. So we'll pass it out, hold it, we'll take it together. So Jesus, tonight. Some are in storms tonight. Storms that maybe they were warned about. And we can feel condemnation because of our foolishness. Some are in storms that just happen because we live in a broken, fallen world where your good creation was fractured and cracked because of the mutiny of our great, 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 great grandparents but you have come to fix that fracture and restore what was lost and to create a new thing in us, to make us new creations. And so whatever storm we're in tonight, Lord, if we're not in a storm, I pray as we partake, may there flood into our hearts the same hope that Paul had who stood in the midst of a storm and encouraged people, who got his voice because of the storm, who knew the promise that you had given to him and stood faithfully, believing in you, amening you. And he was a great light to 276 souls. And that's what we need tonight. We need to be great lights to a city that has grown hopeless to a city that's full of smoke and darkness. We need to be the lights. So I pray, Lord, that your word and remembering you in communion would spark in us great lights. That's what I pray.